look with me in Ephesians 5. We're going to look at verses 22 to 24 today. Unless the men think they're off the hook, I'm coming after you on Father's Day. We'll finish up this passage, but for context, let's look in 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and him is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, that is the church, might be holy and the wife might be holy and without blemish. Same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father of mercy, we thank you that because of the all-sufficient work of your son, we can gather today as the people of God, the church, definitively sanctified, but being sanctified by the, the water of the word. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider this passage which speaks to the mystery revealed by marriage, that it would teach us more about that relationship that Christ has with his bride and inform our marriages as a result. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. William Farley, in his book, Gospel Power Parenting, which I highly recommend to you, Right of a couple, Frank and Kim, that he had counseled. They had been married for 30 years. They had raised four children, but their marriage was a war. Frank was harsh with Kim, rarely communicated with her, and often looked down on her. And Kim was embittered as a result to Frank. She basically quit. She quit cleaning. She quit cooking. She withdrew from him in a significant way. And they tried to compensate with their children. They got a lot of things right, in fact, with their children. They would wake up early every morning. They would teach their children the Bible. They made sure that their children were every week in, a, in, the, in the church where the gospel was preached to them and they meticulously protected their children from all the outside influences of the world. They tried everything that you can ever imagine as parents except the first principle of parenting, their marriage. Now their children are grown. Three of the four 
are completely unchurched. And the fourth one is a nominal church attender at best. What went wrong? Well, Frank and Kim's marriage preached an unappealing gospel to their children. If you ask most Christian parents today, what's the most important thing they can do to raise Christ followers? You will get a variety of answers, and many of them are good answers. But what you won't often hear is the first and most important thing that you do is the example of a godly marriage. And if scripture gives us a blueprint of a godly marriage, it's, it's Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 23. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at it again on Father's Day. And in keeping with that point, that marriage preaches the gospel, look again in verse 32. This mystery, that is the mystery of earthly marriage, he says, is profound. It's a mystery revealed through the marriage. He says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here's Paul's point. From before time began, God the Father had marriage on his mind. He was preparing a bride for his bridegroom son. And it would take the cross, it would take the resurrection of the bridegroom to bring this marriage to pass. And so the gospel makes this divine marriage possible. And Paul's point is that earthly marriages exist to preach that gospel. And so here is the first and most important question that we could ever ask as parents. What is, what gospel is our marriage preaching? The message that our marriage preaches will either repel or attract our children to Jesus. God desires that our children watch our marriages and they be able to say, I want a marriage like mom and dad. And I want a Christ like the one who produced that marriage. And the gospel that marriages are to preach is that the bridegroom loves his bride so much that he humbled himself and became obedient. And in the greatest demonstration of love that the world would ever know, he allowed himself to be tortured to death in the place of his bride so that peace would reign in the place of enmity and alienation. But the gospel isn't just about the groom. We'll certainly pick up there next on Father's Day. It also requires a proper response from the bride. 
And that brings us to the first point in verse 22. The expectation of biblical submission. Notice in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, there are only three texts where both husbands and wives are addressed. Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and here in this present text. And in all three texts, the wives are called to submit to their husbands. Now, just before this passage, notice in verse 21. This is an important point because those who hate this doctrine like to appeal to verse 21. Notice what he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that is the last sentence, or you might say the last verse of a sentence in the original language that begin in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so he is admonishing God's people how to walk in wisdom. And what is New Covenant wisdom? It is skill at applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to every area of our lives. And he concludes that admonition with that command, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, it is completely wrongheaded and disingenuous to the text to think that he's telling every Christian to submit to every Christian in some kind of mutual submission way since he goes on to give asymmetrical commands. Now, what do I mean by that? In other words, he does not tell the husbands to submit to their wives. He doesn't tell the parents, chapter 6, to submit to their children. And he does not tell the slaves are the slave masters to submit to their slaves. Furthermore, there's no statement about submitting to one another in those other two texts that I mentioned, Colossians 3 and 1 Peter chapter 3. What Paul is saying in verse 21 here, where he says we are to submit to one another, is that in all the context, he's about to explain submit to one another. He's about to lay all these scenarios, all these relationships out, and in all these various contexts, you are to submit as you are called. Furthermore, to be subject or to submit in the New Testament always means to submit to an authority. Let me give you a few examples. In Luke chapter 2, verse 17 the Lord Jesus Christ, or rather verse 51, the Lord Jesus Christ submits to his earthly parents. There's nothing about Jesus that's inferior there. He is the God-man. He is the eternal God, son of God, who has put on human flesh. The God-man submits to his earthly parents. And then you have texts like uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 17, where the demons submit to Jesus. And then in Romans 13, the citizens are to submit to their governing authorities. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, 
We, as believers, are to submit to our Heavenly Father. And so all Christians are called to submit in appropriate circumstances. Now, for 19 and a half centuries, that has been completely non-controversial. It just was not even debated. It was a given. Christians understood this without con confusion, but these verses have become an embarrassment since the rise of feminism in the 1960s and the liberation movements that really began to take hold in the 1960s. So how should we respond to the liberation movements in our day? Well, remember the kind of submission that the Apostle Paul is calling for is actually a sign, a signal of liberation, which I'm going to explain just a bit later. The kind of liberation that Jesus Christ has achieved through his cross and his resurrection from the grave. That brings us to the explanation for biblical submission. Notice in verse, 50, uh, verse 23, he writes, Wives are to submit to the husbands, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And so the husband's headship is simply stated as a matter of fact and is made the ground of the wife's submission. And Paul defines the husband's headship in relation to the headship of Jesus, the Savior. Now, Jesus' headship's already been mentioned in chapter 4. Look over in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 4, just one page over in your Bible. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in him in every way who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, which each, when each part is properly working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so it is from Jesus as head that the body derives its health and its growth. And this drives home what Paul is saying in verse 23 of our text when it says, Christ himself is the Savior. And so the head of the body is Christ the Savior. Now, the earthly husband is not the Savior. Uh, the problem arises when he thinks he is, when he thinks he's the Messiah. But having said that, he is an instrument that God uses in the growth, the salvation, the sanctification of the wife. That's why Ephesians 5.25 would say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, that is to sanctify her by the washing with the water of the word. And that's why C.S. Lewis, I think, was correct in his book, The Four Loves, when he says that the headship of the husband is not expressed in such a way where the husband gets to do what he wants. That's not the issue. But in in him whose marriage looks most like a crucifixion. A crucifixion to self. And so every stage 
of the married life. Here's what the husband is to do. He is to do every day a kind of crucifixion audit. That is, he, he measures the way he actually treats his wife against the way Jesus treated the church when he went to the cross for her. Now, that's convicting, isn't it? But that's exactly the, the parallel the Apostle Paul is drawing with regard to men in headship. And so, if the husband's headship resembles Jesus' headship, the wife's submission should resemble the church's submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul would say, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. That brings us to the extent of biblical submission in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, that word, submit, it's a compound word like butterfly. And so the, the prefix is hupo. You would spell this in English, H-Y-P-O. And, and the suffix is tasso. Uh, you would spell it T-A-S-S-O. Literally, to order under. Hupo meaning under and tasso to order. It, it means to order oneself under another. And as previously stated, there are many who would like to get rid of this word. It, in fact, there are people, theologians, who say, we know what Paul is saying here, but we just don't agree with Paul. Now, that's how audacious it's become. It always goes back to what is your authority? Sola Scriptura. You never get past the five solas of the Reformation. And so, it shouldn't surprise us, though, that this word is hated today. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Oh, the curse that came on the man and woman because of Adam's sin, one of the expressions of that, God says to the woman, your desire will be for him, and he shall rule over you. Now, some have taken that as a positive thing. No. Because the desire there is not intimate desire. That same word is used just a chapter over when it says, when God says to Cain, sin is knocking at your door and its desire is for you. And so in Genesis 3.16, God says the natural impulse now in a fallen world for the woman is to usurp the roles and the authority of the husband. And the husband will rule over his wife, not lead her. There's a whole different, that's two different verbs. He will rule over his wife in one of two ways. Either as a totalitarian, abusive sort, or as a spiritual passive who abdicates his spiritual leadership to his wife, or both. Either way, it dominates the wife. It will rule her. 
because he's not being God's man. That is the fallout from sin and the fall itself. And so, biblical submission, we're going to talk about what that is, it signals the reversal of the curse. In fact, this is very interesting to me. In Ephesians chapter 1, after Christ was raised from the grave, the Apostle Paul says, God put all things under his feet. That is, in his purpose to sum up all things in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. He put all things under his feet. That's accomplished. Now, there's, an, there's a not yet aspect to that. It will be consummated when he returns, but it has been accomplished in principle by his resurrection from the grave. All things have been placed underneath his feet. What's interesting is the verb hubotasso is used there. All things have been brought in submission to Jesus Christ by his resurrection from the grave. And so when Paul says, wives, hupotasso, submit to your husbands, he is saying, signal in your marriage the victory that has been achieved by the Son of God in his resurrection. This has nothing to do with chauvinism. This is creationism. Or better said, it's new creationism. The new creation in Jesus frees us from the distortion and the corruption of the husband-wife relationship that has become epidemic in a fallen world. It establishes the original intention. In other words, marriages preach. Marriages exist to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's get more detailed here. I want to close out our time with a little more specificity here. I'm, I'm often asked to be specific and practical in defining what submission is. It's one thing to talk about it. I heard one Bible teachers say submission means to duck until God hits your husband. There's probably some truth to that. I'm always a bit reluctant to speak in specificity because there's as many ways to, to communicate what this is as there are relationships and circumstances in relationships. But at the heart of this pattern is that the wife consciously, daily, in the power of the Spirit. Now, why do I say that? Because before this passage begins in Ephesians 5.18, it says, be filled with the Spirit. Only a Spirit-filled woman can do this. This isn't natural. What's natural is Genesis 3.16. So the Spirit-filled woman consciously reminds herself daily that she is to cultivate this gentle and quiet spirit of honorable submission, ultimately not based on the worth of her husband, but on the worth of her greater bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while recognizing there are so many various ways you could talk about submission, I do want to close out our sermon today with some clear things that we can say about submission. Submission. 
first thing I want to talk about is what it's not. Oftentimes when the, the, the idea of submission is critiqued, it's a straw man that's, that's critiqued. Okay? So what is submission? What is it not? First of all, submission is not grounded in any superiority of the husband or inferiority of the wife. If that were the case, when Jesus submits to his parents, Luke 2.51, at that point, he's inferior to his parents and his earthly parents are superior to him. We know that's nonsense. And when we submit to our governing authorities, we're not inferior to our governing authorities. That's nonsense. The concept of wife as a helper, and that's Genesis 2.18, I will give you a helper, a help me. The, the word there, you would spell it in English, E-Z-E-R, Ezer. Oftentimes that sounds demeaning. What do you mean? I'm just the helper of my husband? Well, consider this. That word is most often used in the Old Testament of God. God is our helper. And so there's nothing demeaning about this, this idea. Secondly, submission does not mean a wife is obligated to follow her husband into sin. Acts 5.29 is the principle there. We shall obey God rather than men. If your husband calls you to do something that is a clear violation of the word of God and your conscience for that matter, though certainly your conscience does not bear the same authority as the word of God, then you aren't to do it. Unless your conscience is in conflict with the word of God. One practical example here. Let's say a, a, a Christian wife has a husband, an unbelieving husband, and he doesn't want her to go to church. This is the only day of the week we can spend together. I don't want you to go to church. What does that wife to do? She's to go to church. Because scripture clearly says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Or if the husband wants you to go to a church that does not preach the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, I love you, but I, I cannot go to a church where the gospel is compromised. Nor does a wife use this idea of submission to rationalize abuse. When a husband is abusing a wife, she is not to condone it. She's not to cooperate with it. She's not to submit to it. She is not to stay in it. Third, submission does not mean the wife must suppress her creative energy or adopt a passive approach to life. We read Proverbs 31 this morning. That woman is industrious. She's the excellent wife. She takes initiative. She's creative. Fourth, neither does submission entail silence. Many erroneously think that it is unsubmissive 
if the wife constructively criticizes her husband. Now, I would say one of the prevailing problems is when a wife criticizes a husband's form of discipline in front of the children. That is a, that is a conversation that takes place in the bedroom with the doors closed. You don't constructively criticize your husband in front of the children in that way. Or they believe, there are some who believe that being unsubmissive, it's unsub, unsubmissive to make requests of him. For instance, that their husbands would act responsibly. Or that she teaches him. The reality is, a woman is called to submit to a husband not because she's intellectually inferior to her husband. Women are just as smart as any man. It has nothing to do with giftings or anything like that. Women have as much to teach men as men have to teach women. Finally, submission does not mean that everything a wife does must be directly dependent upon or related to her husband. In other words, out, activities outside the home. It simply means that nothing is to undermine her first responsibility to the home. So those are just some things to remind us of what submission is not, lest we critique a straw man. But what is submission? First of all, submission is the disposition to honor a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. John Piper, in his book on marriage, says, it's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our home. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish when you're passive, and I have to make sure the family works. It grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond joyfully to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. Second, it is a commitment to support one's husband in a way that he may reach his potential as a man of God. I found this wonderful list from one of Sam Storm's writings that I think is appropriate here. Let me just give you a few of these. Making the home a safe place, free from sinful influence. I mean, it, it astounds me that how many couples watch things on television that are devastating to the husband's soul, certainly to the wife's soul too. But the godly woman protects her home from sinful influence. I remember back a few years ago, we started getting these arbitrary magazines in the mail that were being sent by these publishers. And like, I don't know, I don't even remember the name of them, but Heather said, you're no longer going to the mailbox. And so she intercepted those magazines at the mailbox. She's protecting the home from godless influence. Second is striving to be dependable, striving to be trustworthy. 
Third, providing affirmation and encouragement to one's husband. Building loyalty to him with the children. Man, this is massive. How often do I see the opposite? Because if, if, a, if a wife questions the husband constantly in front of the children, how can you expect the children to respect their father when you don't respect their father? It's a massive problem. Massive. And it's going to have devastating effects when they leave home. Taking an interest in what he's doing at work. Responding joyfully to his good initiatives. Verbally affirming him for his faithfulness and love and leadership. Taking care of your home in such a way that it's a pleasant place for him to be. Taking the initiative to do things that will ease his busy schedule. Seek his counsel on important decisions. Speaking respectfully about him to others. Don't speak ill about your husband. Works both ways. To your friends. Giving him the opportunity to lead rather than too quickly jumping in to take control. Because that's again, the, that is our natural state. If you want to lead wife, I will abdicate my responsibility to you. Happens in the church, by the way, as well. Being content with his provision for your family and regularly praying that he'd live out God's intentions for him. Now what happens though, let me just say this, what happens when you're married to an unbeliever? The studies show that 25%, this is the last stat I saw, of Christian women are married to unbelievers. 25%. One out of four is a believing wife to submit to her unbelieving husband. We'll hear 1 Peter 3. Wives, submit to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, that's language for an unbeliever, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So submission there does not mean you agree with everything that your husband says. You don't agree with him on the most important ultimate reality, God. Here submission means you're not to give up on your efforts to change your husband. The point is, Peter is telling the Christian wife how to win her husband. And strangely enough, Peter envisions submission as the primary way to win her husband to Christ. Isn't that remarkable? It's counter to the way we think. That's why we need the Bible. We have to renew our minds. It's also the way we change our Christian husbands as well. Third, submission fulfills the purpose of completing one another. Now, we're in completing Christ, but what I would mean by that is sanctifying one another. We are instruments of sanctification, Ephesians 5, 31 to 33. And submission is a means towards that end. We are like ore from a mine. When you get married, you, you, you perceive the gold, primarily the gold that in your spouse. But in time, you begin to see remnants of the, the flesh 
attitudes, sin patterns, that are the dross, if you will, that is going to be burned up in the light of God's glory in time. These, these flaws are not permanent. They're not ultimate. But they feel that way sometimes. They can loom large. And yet if a, a wife and her husband learn to make the distinction between the dross and the gold, that's massive. Instead of saying, well, that's the way he is, and I hate it, I despise it, remember that that's the part of him, that part that you hate, if he's a believer, that's not permanent. And so it would be good for the husband and wife to sit down and agree, these are the aspects of our lives that are gold. And these are the aspects of our lives that are dross, that will be burned up ultimately. The gold is the real you. It's who God wants you to be. And the dross is what has got to go. For submission is fundamentally an attitude, an act of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're ultimately submitting to your greater bridegroom, not to your husband. Submission signals that Christ is the reigning Lord. He is the reigning bridegroom. Dick Lucas says, according to Paul, there is no possibility of a married woman's surrender to a heavenly Christ, which is not made visible and actual by some submission to an earthly husband. And when it is ignored, it does not make life better for women. It actually makes life worse. In fact, many of the stresses and the strains on family life are precisely due to ignoring this vital command. So wives, by your biblical submission, biblical submission, you preach. You preach the gospel. Marriages exist for something bigger than us, much bigger than us. The end goal is not our personal happiness. That is the fruit, but it's not the goal. And that's why marriage is the first principle of parenthood. When you marry, you get into something that was invented by God. Remember that. Marriage is not, that's why we can't redefine marriage, by the way. <laughs> because we didn't invent it. Only the, the inventor can, de can define what marriage is. And from the very beginning, marriage is defined as a man and a woman. And so you're into something now that was not invented by you. It was invented by God. And if you determine to run your marriage your way, it's going to cause devastation. Not just for you, not just for your marriage, but also for your children. So important to understand this. And therefore, because it is God's institution, we have to ask ourselves this question. How do I obtain a marriage like Ephesians 5? Like it lays out. 
first of all, as, as, as a husband and as a wife draw near to God, they do draw near to each other. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell you, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. As you let the word of Christ indwell you, the fruit of that will to speak to others, including your spouse, with worship, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Ephesians 5.18 says the same thing. If you are filled with the Spirit, you will speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I read this week of a marriage counselor who said that when a marriage, when, when a couple comes to him, the first thing he asks them, do you pray together on a regular basis? And he said, I have never received a positive response from a marriage in trouble. I have never seen a couple who prays together whose marriage is in trouble. Isn't that remarkable? And men... Submission is a monumental task. Requires the, the omnipotent third person of the, Holy, of, of, of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, to generate that for a woman. But you can make it much more palatable and easier by loving her as Christ loved the church. Striving to love her in that way. Uh, that is, dying to self, loving her in a manner that is costly for her redemptive good. And then, I just want to close here with a word to our older women. You can also, this is your calling, by the way. This is one of the highest, important, most important callings for older women. You have a role in this. Don't let the younger women go at this alone. In Titus 2, listen to what it says. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and train the young women to love their husbands and children. You know what that's telling us? The younger women need you. And that is your calling. It's not just to hang out with people your age. It's to go invest in the next generation. Notice teaching them, training them to love their husbands and wives, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Women need to be taught by other women on what this means, that the word of God may not be reviled. Do you see what's on the line? That the word of God may not be reviled. And so this is God's first prescription for a marriage and for Christian parenting. Let's pray for our marriages as we close this morning. Father, thank you for giving us this text because it's not natural to us. It's not natural to submit. It's not natural to love as Christ loved the church. In fact, that is so foreign to our natural impulses. But because of the finished work of Jesus, who has redeemed us not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And because of the indwelling spirit, we have all resources to obey what the Apostle Paul has called us to do. All sufficient manna. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. Teach us what that means. 
to avail ourselves to the resources you've given us. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And Lord, I pray that this would inform every marriage in this place. And Lord, where this marriage has not been displayed, I pray you would bring about repentance and renewal and reconciliation. And Father, if there's any here today that's never trusted in Jesus, I pray today, what a wonderful day to humble oneself and repent of sin and come to Christ. Pray today would be the day of salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.